Okay, welcome everyone to this session of Philosophy Matters. My name is Les Allen. I'm the facil uh, facilitator of Philosophy Matters. Our special guest tonight is Adam Ford, and Adam will be speaking on how superintelligent AI will likely transform our future. What's tonight's talk about? Well, it starts with a question. Is artificial superintelligence, ASI, imminent? Adam will assess the evidence and ethical importance of artificial intelligence, its opportunities and risks, drawing on the history of progress in AI and how today it surpasses peak human capability in some domains, he will present forecasts about further progress. Now here's an important quote. Progress in AI will likely be explosive, even more significant than both the agricultural and industrial revolutions. End of quote. Adam will explore the notion of intelligence and what aspects are missing in AI now and how understanding arises in biological intelligence and how it could be realized in AI over the next decade or two. He will conclude with takes on ideal AI outcomes and some recommendations for increasing the likelihood of achieving them. Now, a little about Adam Ford. Adam has a Masters of IT from RMIT, and he is an IEET affiliate scholar, a futurologist, and works as a data information architect, a data analyst, and a data engineer. He co-organized a variety of conferences in Australia, USA, and China. Adam also convenes the global effort of Future Day, seeking to ritualize focus on the future to a specific day. He's a grassroots journalist, having interviewed many experts on the future, and is currently working on a documentary project focusing on preparing for the future of artificial intelligence. So without any further ado, I'd like to hand over to uh, tonight's guest, Adam Ford. Thanks very much for the introduction. Yes, so I'm going to be talking about artificial intelligence and I'll be putting some focus on what it means for any agent, including humans like us, to understand um, and artificial intelligence to understand. Um, so my views are my own. I, I encourage everybody to um, criticise my views in uh, the nicest way as possible, of course. <laughs> So please apply your sceptical tools against um, some of the things I bring up tonight. And I think these ideas are really important. And I just hope everybody gets a chance to um, sort of uh, like grok them and understand them tonight. And uh, I, I do seek to get more attention on them and, and gain more opportunities to be proven wrong. So I won't be covering an exhaustive enumeration of all the technological advances over the last um, few centuries uh, but yeah, well, I'm going to be addressing what it means um, for humans. What what is the uh, the issue of human level intelligence? If we can give it a level. Um, oh, this video, by the way, is AI learning how to play pong or whatever it's called, and it uh, it it sort of learnt by trial and error, but it learnt quite quickly. And I think after like a like a well. A certain after four hours of learning to play this, it worked out how to sort of break through to the other side and create a tunnel 
through to the other side and then um, win the game uh, quite strategically. So it, 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 strategies emerged in its um, learning capabilities. Yeah. Okay, so there is a conference that is going to be on this year. It's going to be on the 23rd and 24th of April 2022 on Futurology. We've got a number of really interesting people coming to speak on that. Some of the um, the people have spoken uh, on the on the podcast before uh, on on my podcast or vidcast before, um, but they're going to be addressing all sorts of things like um, long termism, uh, the ethics of AI, accelerating technology, uh, uh, moral enhancement. James Hughes is going to be speaking about that, uh, and yeah, all sorts of things. So I hope you can all come along. So what's the use of really uh, addressing this issue? So there's a couple of things. I think there's a desirability aspect and why address the issues of whether AI will surpass human level intelligence. I think it really matters what kinds of minds, what kinds of AI, if they do surpass human level intelligence do. Um, if it's, yeah, if we put the wrong kinds of um, in, uh, powerful super intelligence uh, on stage, then I think we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Uh, I, as I'll argue later, intelligence is very powerful. We, I think it will greatly increase the likelihood of a beneficial future if we have the right kinds of minds. We're living in a time now where we've kind of gotten used to the idea that things happen really quickly. And um, I'll hope to demonstrate that there's a substantial chance of human level A before the end of this century. I think there's also quite a substantial chance it'll happen in the next few decades. Uh, if it's true that human level intelligence, uh, super intelligence will likely follow it. If, if, if there is human level AI that comes along, super intelligence will probably be just shortly thereafter. Um, and an intel that, that's what we refer to as an intelligence explosion. So we'll have an AI driven uh, productivity uh, explosion because with the power of intelligence we'll be able to solve a whole lot of problems that are sort of um, stopping us from yeah being productive in certain ways uh, solving the sorts of problems like for instance relating to climate change or um, you know solving the problems around providing better vaccines uh, uh, so we hope that the intelligence explosion won't be uncontrollable or won't be completely crazy because we want to survive because the long-term future could be amazing. I'll talk more about that later. So the thing is, how should we really think about this question? I think there's a, a few common misconceptions out there about around AI. And one of them's about... Um, the power of intelligence. And I think generally as a, as a construct, the, the, the power is, is, is uh, quite obvious that it's um, gotten to, it, it, it's been a, a, like a, a huge cause in how we got to uh, our civilization. We have opposable thumbs and we have the ability to manipulate the environment. We've got, uh, but um, some animals just don't have that. Octopuses have, um, yeah, they, they have, like uh, they have limbs that aren't really amenable to tinkering in, I guess, uh, with a lot of finesse, some objects. I mean, we've been able to um, 
design fashion our environment into hand axes and and guns and uh, rifles and we've been able to go from barefoot meandering to flying through the sky and uh, achieving escape velocity and orbiting around the planet so if you have a look at this graph um, or this chart we can have a look at the the amount of time it's taken since the beginning of the universe or at least the big bang where we started at the first life on earth was a relatively short period of time compared to um, the amount of time that you know was that the universe was around before us and then the first brains appeared um so once there was multi-celled organisms then things started to kick off pretty quickly and then we started using tools i mean it's really hard to see <laughs> the difference between tool use human civilization the scientific revolution the first computers and space travel because it they're so close together that it just is just too difficult for us to really graph and yeah but if we zoom in a bit we can see that economic growth um, has sort of gone pretty gangbusters but it may seem normal to us um, it's day to day where we expect a new version of an iPhone every couple of years or maybe even every year uh, or that computing power will go up and you know we'll be we'll upgrade and that's just the way of life but things, but um, economic growth has been happening, I think, about a few percent per year, year in, year out, on average, since, well, uh, 1950. So where's it going after? Where, where's this dotted, dotted line heading? Uh, so if we zoom in ev even further, then we can see um, just beforehand, there was a quite a big uh, surge in economic growth. So we live in this surge. We're living through it. Um, right now and it's rather strange and unique time to be alive compared to the rest of the time where living organisms were around and certainly the rest of uh, the, most of the time of the universe um, the history of the universe so if there is further acceleration beyond this line here um, we could really reach a, an extremely profound tech uh level of technological advancement we don't know how it's going to happen maybe um we're in for a crash and we're going to go downhill maybe it'll just keep on um growing economic growth anyway maybe it'll plateau out a bit we don't know but what does it look like many people think of a, a grand future civilization which there could be um headed eventually but don't bother really thinking about these things because they always seem or don't bring it up as being realistic uh, in the near term because they think it's far off. So if we have a look at the uh, productivity feedback loops that we've been going through, here's a little graphic shows that, well, a certain amount of food feeds a certain amount of people and these certain amount of people have ideas. You can't really see them, that, but they're uh, next to these people are light globes and they've, they figure out how agriculture and how, how two people could make more food than they need. And then um, eight people figure out how to make even more food than they would ever need. And then, um, you know, they, they multiply and create more people and they need more food to sustain them. But where's this heading? Where does this end up going? Well, it gets to a certain point where people get lazy and they don't need to <laughs> produce anymore. And so they hoard 
resources and um, do whatever. Maybe maybe that's the way things will be in the future. Maybe that's why uh, economic growth will um, stagnate or slow down. Uh, there could be also, uh, I guess, bottlenecks that we're approaching. Another way to think about intelligence is through the lens of force multipliers. Um, and if we think of, uh, well, for like technologies like uh, GPS um, and I guess cars, you know, these things have allowed us, allowed humans to be more capable. GPS and cars give us the cap give us the stronger capability of being able to be in many places that are far away in in uh, short amounts of time. So it gives us this makes us faster and more able to sort of navigate uh, and uh, find stuff a lot easier. So compared uh, like and computational power has gone up, uh, but um, if we were to think back not too long ago, uh, a few hundred years, you know, people had uh, slide rules and even further beyond that or abacuses. If we compare the computational power of a bunch of humans uh, solving math problems with pieces of paper, slide rules and abacuses to a modern day laptop, laptops can uh, solve or laptops can compute a lot faster. It's still the people though that are, um, that have the understanding about how like uh, the, the, uh, the, that aspect that gives fire to the equations that is um, like they work out how to solve uh, some of the intractable um, problems with the aid of computers. And so, so evolution was by blind natural selection. It was through a blind evolutionary process. Um, it didn't have any foresight or understanding behind it. It was just, and it didn't really, um, yeah, it, it, it quite amazing that it produced what it did. Uh, but it took a long time to to get to where we are now and and failed a lot along the way. Uh, not that it had a, a goal in mind. Uh, it's just that it, it um, a lot of species that it generated ended up dying out and and were replaced by new ones, um, not necessarily from the same branch and phylogenetic tree. So but with us, we've been able to sort of reverse engineer what, the, the uh, I guess the uh, the optimization process that evolution endowed us with that's intelligence, um, and that's this is a new signature of how to develop new um, new versions of intelligence or new breeds of intelligence that ha that wasn't there before um, us the, before we were around on Earth to do so. So they may exist somewhere else in the universe. We just can't see them. AI is very powerful. It's now powerful, and I'm arguing it's going to be more powerful in the future. And so I've put this little syllogism in here to say, uh, just to sort of make my argument very clear, um, intelligence is powerful, and my argument is that AI is intelligent now, um, and therefore AI is already intelligent and powerful. Sorry. Um, the technological progress is, um, is at a much faster uh, is a much faster force multiplier than the evolutionary process that I mentioned earlier. And AI is subject to the technological progress and um, human intelligence is subject to the evolutionary progress. Therefore, AIs will become smarter than human intelligence. That is, unless we use technology to augment our own intelligence. So, but I'd say that it will take longer for um, humans to be augmented than it might 
within um, artificial intelligence, as I'll argue later. So more intelligence is more powerful than less intelligence. Therefore, AI will overtake human intelligence. Therefore, AI will be more powerful than human intelligence. So hopefully that is black and white. So let's talk about the intelligence explosion. It's a, a, the ultimate force multiplier. Um, and it's not, it's not a necessary condition to actually achieve human AI, human level AI, or even um, uh, greater than human level AI. But we think that it's quite probable that if an AI can get to the stage where it's at our level or around our level uh, and beyond, then that will be, um, yeah, an advantage that it can use to make better versions of itself. So I, I think a lot of you are quite aware of this quote. Um, I won't repeat it verbatim. Um, you can look it back up later. So the idea, this is Sisyphus who sitting down reading a book after he's developed an autonomous robot to push rocks uphill. Um, and so it's kind of what we're doing with our tools where we're trying to automate all the, the difficult, annoying tasks. Uh, and so, but, but what happens when this little robot learns to push the rock over the other side of the hill or it develops other robots to do the same thing? <laughs> and then it can sort of sit around doing what it wants to do. Um, so improving intelligence accelerates and once it reaches past a, sipping, a tipping point, after a certain, um, I guess, tipping point, it will just naturally uh, fall or naturally um, gravitate towards uh, a, a stronger tractor like gravity or like um, the will to have more um, optimization power. So David, David Chalmers wrote this very clearly. Uh, wrote about this very clearly in his uh, paper, A Singularity, a, a Philosophical Analysis, definitely worth a read. I won't go into it too much because I'm already running low on time. Uh, Werner Vinci actually coined the term. He's a well-known science fiction writer who wrote, uh, won a lot of Hugo Awards. And uh, he thought that human-level AI would be reached, but only briefly because he thinks that um, uh, super intelligent, it will be super, will be, uh, I guess, super intelligence shortly after. Um, it'll sort of foom off way beyond us. In some ways, arguably, human intelligence is way more smarter than us. Uh, and it, you know, it can learn um, by itself now, uh, as we've seen with popular games like chess and uh, Go. But I guess the thesis behind a and uh, I guess a, a self-reinforcing feedback loop here, the thesis behind the intelligence explosion is that it, um, if an AI can optimize itself, then it can use the optimization that it's achieved, whether it be its source code or its hardware, um, to become a better optimizer. And, and so it optimizes itself once, then next iteration, it uses that extra optimization power to get even better at optimizing itself again and again and again and again. And so you do get a positive feedback loop if this pans out. So, I mean, there's various ways that it could, uh, you know, stop and there, there may be bottlenecks. And I think in some ways there could be a bottleneck with um, some deep... Uh, some styles of AI like deep learning because it's a very predictive in nature it requires more and more data, um, huge amounts of data to, uh, to become better and better at what it's doing. Uh, but it is producing some really interesting, uh, some really interesting 
properties. Like if you've ever had a, a chance to check out some of the text generation software out there, it's, it's, yeah, it's quite amazing. I'll, I'll try and uh, give some examples a bit later. And so here we go. Um, we have Moore's law. Everybody's heard of that. Uh, it's been used rhetorically in the past to just mean um, everything's going to go up and, you know, just because Moore's law, the singularity and all that sort of stuff. But um, if we have a look at what it actually means, we've seen CPU transistors, um, the amount which we can actually put on a, a wafer of a CPU uh, grow reasonably exponentially. It, some people believe that that's sort of slowed down. Other people have cited evidence that it hasn't slowed down. Um, have we seen the increase of transistors on CPUs in our personal computers grow? Uh, I'm not so sure, but I'm sure out there in in uh, in industry, uh, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of um, very powerful CPUs. That doesn't necessarily. I guess technically Moore's law doesn't actually refer to CPUs getting more powerful in any way possible because there's other ways you can just fit more cache on a CPU. Um, you can have more cores on a CPU um, and there's other ways in which you can use pipelines to make a, a CPU a lot more fast, but other things have been growing uh, exponentially as well, like graphical processing units uh, and uh, hard drives and now solid state drives. So, but what caused Moore's law really to, to get, kicking it was our intelligence so we designed um the logic and the uh the substrates and the how the the technology fits together all the engineering all the physics all the the chemistry of all the components that go into the cpus and 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 the all the algorithms that run on them that was all the product of human intelligence although augmented with the the technology in 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 stages that it, that we've created, so should we be concerned about this? If you're not all that worried and you think that by default AI, if it does become super intelligent, be friendly, um, amenable to our interests, uh, will not be by by default won't be nasty, won't cause us to go extinct, and will be just generally a, a force for good then. Okay, but if there's even the smallest degree of likelihood that you think that things might go wrong, if the, um, if the AI's value alignment may be um, sort of, uh, I guess, um, different to our own, then we we need to be concerned because it's a, the intelligence explosion, if it happens, will be an extremely powerful event. And, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm also worried about the, the, the idea of race conditions where a bunch of people are just, I guess, uh, not taking precautions in the way they develop AI so that they can reach AI first and get the first mover advantage. Our friend Hugo de Garris has written about the sociological problems with artificial intelligence rising um, and divides them into a couple of camps, like those who favour AGI, who want to merge with it at some stage and those who don't want um, AI to, to come about because they think that it'll destroy us all. And so even uh, it may not be AI that destroys us. It may be the ideological conflict between people <laughs> that um, use the tools of AI that cause us to uh, cause, I guess, civilization to go pear-shaped.
So will human level AI rise at the same pace of AI? I say no, because there's biological bottlenecks. We will merge with AI. But um, I'd say that there are some problems in doing so. There's some engineering feats that we haven't solved. Um, maybe there'll be a surge in um, human plus AI intelligence. But in the long run, I think um, biological bottlenecks will come into play. But that's just my opinion. Um, I, I'm not going to go too further in this. So can we actually um, take the side of the Terrans and, uh, or the, uh, the Neo-Luddites and um, halt technological progress in general? Um, ben Goetzel thinks it's, it, it won't be possible. Uh, I tend to agree that there's just too much economic incentive to, to quell it. I just um, I've spoken to a rachno sorry an acro primitivist before, and he thinks that we should just sort of uh, stop all technological progress and and ban all forms of domestication, including language. But even if we did uh, manage to do that, the very act of banning language and stopping all technological progress will mean that the I guess the the argument, the signature, the philosophy of banning technology won't survive because it won't have a, um, you, you won't be couched in any language or in any books or in any tablets. It'll just, it'll be forgotten. And then somebody will rise, make, you know, rise to prominence in, in our language and technology in the future and we'll have another civilization, maybe. So how should we really think about this problem? General rationality is to don't think in on and off ways. Think about degrees of belief. Um, we should have confidence intervals and credence levels. Um, so we should be asking questions. What's the likelihood of smarter than human level intelligence by 2050 or 75? I'd like to say that also there's many ways to solve a problem like intelligence in the same way as there's many ways to solve the problem of flight. Um, you can use hot air balloons, um, TARDISes, drones, um, spiritual levitation, uh, rocket power, uh, flapping wings, gliding, uh, propellers, as I've mentioned, and uh, jet engines. So we, did, we, we didn't need to develop, when we developed heavier than air flight, we, perhaps a few people tried flapping wings and didn't, it wasn't nearly as successful as jets or propellers. So we've kind of done something that evolution didn't focus on. We do have, a, a, I guess, a similarity to jet engines at the, the micro scale. We have fragellums, but they don't exist in the macro scale because it's really hard to transport nutrients. <laughs> Stuart Russell, who's um, a well-known uh, AI guy who helped co-author the seminal textbook uh, for students called Machine uh, AI, A Modern Approach, and he said that aer an aeronautical engineering text don't define the goal of their field as making machines that fly so exactly like pigeons that they can't fool even other pigeons, which I thought was rather funny, sort of a play on the Turing test. Um, but there's probably many ways to achieve uh, general intelligence. I don't think that we should put all our stock in one way. Um, at the moment, deep learning is going gangbusters. Um, and I think that it will continue to go gangbusters, but there might be a bottleneck in, in that it's, it, it only really works as a, a great predictor. Um, in the past, humans were, who were great predictors were also great understanders. 
um, because they understand, because they understood something in the world, uh, uh, they had a great model in their head of how something worked, they also would be able to, from that, make great predictions about what would happen um, regarding whatever they were modeling in their head. But these machines, they, they don't have um, a good representation uh, of causality and their They've got a, like a deep learning. It's like this huge network of distributed representations is what makes it so powerful. Um, but they're very much intertwined. They're very tightly coupled. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, you make a change in one representation uh, and others change with it. I guess a multi-path approach to trying to achieve the engineering feat of artificial general intelligence is, is good. And I think um, maybe the type of AI that will um, uh, end up being the first to achieve uh, super intelligence is one that uses many approaches, um, some from the good old fashion symbolic AI approach, some from deep learning and some from maybe uh, causal representation learning. So let's talk about different aspects of artificial general intelligence. And so often I come into the problem of trying to discuss AGI and often people ask, well, when's AGI going to happen? And AGI is the, the term has kind of developed a life on its own and people see it as this goalpost, this significant time and point in the future where suddenly AIs will be general, but we don't think of human intelligence as, you know, just either general or not. There's the, the G factor in psychometrics is like a more of a degree or a, a sort of a gradient. Um, and so, you know, we have a, a number which represents a sort of um, a, an IQ score that we measure human intelligence with. Um, so maybe we, we need to look at not just waiting for AGI to come along, but give it an IQ score or how, how, how general is it? Is it, uh, is it you know, a, a, a one out of 200? Is it a 15 at the moment? Where are we along this sort of this scale? The other thing is um, another term is uh, the, the, the idea of a narrow AI. But uh, yeah, it's hard to define what really is narrow and, and what's wide because again, the difference between narrow and, and uh, wide is a, is a gradient. And so I think it's important to understand that we should think of these things in terms of um, degrees and gradients rather than just on or off because we may, um, okay, well, Let's just say AGI is becoming more and more feasible, but we just don't take notice because we actually haven't achieved it yet. And we're just waiting for the time in which AGI will suddenly be there. And then we'll start worrying about it. Uh, we, we should um, be aware uh, of, the, of, of all sorts of factors in uh, trying to assess whether AI or strong AI or artificial general intelligence that will strong artificial general intelligence is, is nearby. So some of the key uh, building blocks to achieving um, generalized intelligence is unsupervised learning and transferred learning. So unsupervised learning is where you don't label all the, the input data. Uh, the AI learns how to, um, to work at it, works out how, how to categorize it and, and, and make use of it by itself. I guess some of you are aware of AlphaGo, uh, which is uh, a deep learning neural net, a bit of a mishmash of that and uh, a lot of other things. But yeah, it, it uh, beat the, the world champion at 
the game of Go, um, where people were wondering whether it'll ever happen. Um, and, you know, the, the most prominent forecasts were saying at least 10 years. And then Alpha Star came along, which beat all the, the previous Alpha Goes. So I'll, I'll just discuss transfer learning, where you can transfer knowledge from one domain um, to another. Uh, and I think this is important as well. So it's not just uh, being able to read unlabeled data, it's being able to transfer what the AI learns into, um, into areas of domains that it, weren't, it wasn't trained on, for instance, sort of out of spectrum uh, domains. Uh, so another one is zero shot, one shot or few shot learning. GPT-3 that maybe meant, some of you have heard of, this is a really far out text generation AI that can write essays for students, <laughs> you know, in few shots, in a few few tries. Usually it's it's pretty good on the first or second or third try. Sometimes you get lucky and it, and it succeeds in writing something that um, is that makes sense and would pass as an undergraduate level sort of a essay. Uh, but sometimes it takes longer and sometimes it produces really uh, insanely crazy results that people reading it would just think that it um, maybe, is, uh, I don't know, come across as like overly postmodernist or whatnot. Transfer learning, some examples, Impala and Regal. These these things do exist. There's, uh, I don't think they exist robustly in industry yet, um, but I haven't really done any sort of investigation recently. I prepared these slides for a talk two years ago. So, or maybe even a bit longer, but um, yeah. So there could be better examples of transfer learning out there in the wild now. I'm just not aware of them, but just so you know, there are examples of transfer learning now. Uh, let's talk, talk about the different kinds of minds. And so well, it's important to think about this because if we think about um, the resulting intelligence that uh, from AI may not be very human at all, it might be quite alien. Um, and so we exist on this phylogenetic tree as one of the sort of the minds that arose from evolution. We have birds which have like a, um, a sort of related to us in, on a nearer branch than something like an octopus. But or cephalopods are so intelligent. We've done tests and they've been able to solve all sorts of really weird and interesting problems. But... Um, their branch bifurcated from our branch or the branch that was older than us a long time ago. So it's interesting that this, uh, this strange attractor in, uh, for intelligence, for, um, you know, a, a sort of a problem solving ability uh, was there. And it's, it's, it's like um, convergent evolution. Like most eyes evolved on many, at many different stages in, in evolution and, uh, other things did too. And so that was a strange attractor, the ability to sort of see the environment around. Um, but it seems as though intelligence was, is as well, but it, it happened a lot later on uh, the, in, 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 uh, along the development of uh, the phy evolutionary phylogenetic tree. So if we imagine this space of all possible minds, this is just a conceptual space, uh, but if we imagine that minds could um, inhabit 
other logical parts of this minds in general space. And we imagine that we only um, inhabit a small, tiny fraction of that. Augmented humans um, may inhabit a, quite a, a larger space and then post-human mind space might be quite a lot bigger and then you know there's a wide space of for minds in general for ai to sort of come about so ai may be kind of very close to human if we develop it in that way um i i think though in many ways it'll be very alien in in some sense it already is it's the way that it solved the problem of how to beat humans at Go, it came up with all sorts of really strange strategies to beat human players and same with chess. Um, and now humans are sort of studying how AI worked out how to beat them. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that that's the Go aficionados are using the revealed strategies that AlphaGo and uh, other, other AI developed and, and are sort of meditating on that to improve their own human games, which is fascinating. So there are some great examples of really intelligent animals. Uh, there's this porter, uh, Fimbriata. I think this is a, a, a spider that notices the behaviors of other spiders and learns how they operate and then sneaks up on them and eats them. <laughs> by uh, strategizing and formulating, taking in their behavior into account and then end up being really successful predators because of that. Uh, octopuses, which are really good at mimicking some octopuses, which have found, uh, I guess, refuse of human garbage, like chopped um, coconut and, and use it as a sort of armor to sort of improve the likelihoods of survival, create a house. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Just because minds are strange doesn't mean that they're, they're not intelligence. Science fiction writers have written about different forms of intelligence in interesting ways. Well, think to yourselves about like the, the movie, if you've seen it, Solaris, where intelligence, like they found an intelligence on a planet, a, on a big sort of solar sort of planet um, or a planet that had a, a lot of weird phenomenon, clouds and magnetic, influence on, on, on like in the atmosphere and the intelligence sort of uh, arose in that and and uh i guess communicated and, and operated uh in a very strange way um that humans that the human visitors found very difficult to understand so that's just an example of um maybe maybe not necessarily a realistic example of how ai might come about but it's just a a, a fun thought experiment I thought would be useful to bring up. Um, so let's have a recap of what I've already spoken about. And that is intelligence is very powerful um, and it's important uh, to track progress in AI and that AI doesn't need to be a re-implementation of human style intelligence for it to be powerful. Uh, we, what we really need is a wide view of possible intelligences and then we're more likely to detect it should it arise. Um, so let's avoid anthropomorphism and uh, limiting our sort of expectations on what intelligence is and, and how it will appear in an artificial way. So now that we've spoken about different kinds of possible minds that um, could arise, what kinds of minds do we want to have our 
strong AIs to inhabit. And by strong AI, I'm sort of using the term to sort of mean something similar to general intelligence or something not quite super intelligence, but pretty strong um, around about human level. So one of the shortfalls with AI at the moment is it doesn't seem to understand what's going on. And so a key point is the ethical AI may need to actually reason about um, moral quandaries and philosophical pro, um, problems. And I'm not sure that AI without causal reasoning, like for instance, plain old deep learning is the kind of approach that will likely scale up and eventually capture the full subtleties of human philosophical reasoning um, that I think that's required to make sound ethical judgments. Um, and humans are relatively good at causal reasoning compared to machines, but machines can um, surpass humans that may be identifying cats in photos now just by pure huge amounts of data and brute force and the uh, correlative power of prediction. Uh, so AI correlates a huge amount of big data and it can make very, um, after training a lot, it can make a whole heap of predictions. It takes a lot of training and a lot of tries. I mean, millions and billions of tries in order to become then a good predictor at cats in photos. And there's, a, there's an interesting theory about consciousness, and that's the global workspace theory of consciousness, where the spotlight um, is, or the bottleneck, is that this few, like, I think it's around four or five, people used to think it, around, it was around six or seven. Anyway, the, a few slots in our short-term memory that we can have in our conscious mind um, at once. Uh, and so we only have a, a certain amount of um, representations that we can fit in our brain at once. And remember before I was talking about how um, neural nets or deep learning and artificial neural nets are, um, are very powerful because they've got this massive amount of distributed representations happening in, um, in their neural nets, but they're very tightly coupled. They're all like a very, they all cling, they're all, they've got a lot of uh, vertices connecting them um, and so it ends up being very tangled and very messy. Uh, imagine like a, um, the head of a, a Rastafarian hippie with all his dreads uh, intertwining and uh, all mingling into one big blob. Um, it may look pretty cool uh, and it may even make the hippie a really good musician. I don't know. Um, but it's very hard to disentangle. And so we don't want machine learning that's so hard to disentangle that we can't make any sense of it. We can't have too much of an entangled representations going on, going into our, our um, global workspace or our short-term memory, because it will make it very difficult to um, make sense of them in isolation. Uh, but what really helps is having a causal representation of what's going on. Uh, and that reduces the amounts of, um, and I guess, entanglements required and the amount of, uh, I guess, information required to make sense of something. Uh, and it's been, it's, look, it's a, it's, it's a, a big, yeah, it, it goes a lot deeper than what I'm going to be able to uh, talk about today, but there is a lot of research going into causal representation learning now. And I think that that's uh, going to make a big, a big impact in the near term. Um, some experts are saying this decade uh, we, we may have not only a mathematical, a rigorous mathematical representation of causal representation learning. Now we already have Bayesian nets, but they, they, they can't learn on the fly. 
we need to um, get experts in, facilitate expertise, and then um, have a bunch of humans sort of translate that into a, a like a, I guess, a, a graph, uh, a causal graph. Um, but anyway, so these deep learning representations are um, not really abstract as rep representations that we think appear in the human brain. They're very complex and massively tangled. And we think that causal reasoning is important because in order to accommodate the um, like interventions that happen in the world, if somebody like, you know, if, if, if uh, yeah, interventions are very con uh, confusing for AI. So um, yes, if there's changes in the world, the internal model of AI ne often needs to be retrained. If, if that kind of intervention wasn't count, wasn't um, catered for in its training data, so in a sense, high level representations are really required to achieve something like machine understanding. So um, it really matters because I think if we don't have machines that properly understand the ethical quandaries and um, the philosophical issues and the, uh, the, the big social issues that, are, that surround some of the problems that we need to solve in order to, I guess, progress civilization to, a, um, I guess, a more resilient, fault tolerant state, it's going to have to understand what's going on. This is too much data to collect. And, and uh, maybe I'm wrong, but my intuition is that just mere predicting algorithms won't be able to scale to the degree to which it can actually make significant progress in philosophy or ethics or um, understanding sociological problems. Um, and even if it does, let's just say it like we have this super AI oracle that's a big black box. What if we can't see inside it? What's, what, what if we, we, we learn to trust it because it's become so good at predicting, it's um, you know, become a super predictor, it's really good that we trust it so much. Um, as soon as it fails, uh, then we're in, we, we could be in deep waters. Um, so I think it's important for AI to be intelligible. And I think when I say intelligibility, um, I, I'd like to think of it more, um, in terms of it being able to understand itself and it being able to translate to us in an intelligent way, in, in, into a human intelligible way, what's going on inside its models and explain how it got to um, its solution to problem X, right? So many of you have read uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where the deep mind, the super intelligent robot or AI um, comes up with the solution to everything but can't tell you how it got there. Um, it was a, it's just a big blocks, a, a big black box. And so, um, yeah, I guess Douglas Adams was really onto something when he uh, yeah, wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy, and you know it was funny, but it's serious. I, um, uh, I, I, I'd hate for us to have um, a, a really completely alien, unintelligible um, AI making decisions that we can't vet, that we can't uh, check about the future of human civilization, or the future of humanity in general, or the future of life on on Earth. It could like a catastrophically fail. I mean, AI catastrophically fails now. That's why we, although they're really powerful, the GPT text generation algorithms, we don't use them in, in industry or, or in any way that where, where there's some, I guess, urgent dependency on it. 
because it's just it, it, you know, it's just too often unreliable. But when it does produce uh, results, they're often really amazing, but they're just yeah, um, just a little bit unreliable, a little bit too unreliable for us to depend on them. Um, these are like amazing. They're great for demos. Uh, don't get me wrong. And I'm, I'm really excited about the next generation of text generation software, uh, GPT four or five or six or seven. I'm looking forward to having conversations with it, but at the moment um, it's not used because it doesn't seem it. So it's very dependable. So the non-explicability of the mechanisms which produce this predictive accuracy is an area of extreme danger. If we had a malevolent AI that would suddenly, um, maybe it would just learn to uh, wirehead or you know, uh, reward hack itself and then would just forget about the needs of humans and just uh, it, it would just become this sort of, I don't know, utility monster, big ball of bliss that uses all their the matter and energy in its neighboring region to convert into some fuel for reward hacking, including our own atoms. <laughs> it become the, uh, a real utility monster. Is everybody aware of what a utility monster is? It's a philosophical sort of monster. Um, well, it's a, a monster in philosophy where all it does is just uh, um, optimize everything so that it can get, get more bliss. Judea Pearl, who was uh, has done a lot of foundational work in in causal inference um, and Bayesian networks, bit of a legend, really. Um, if there's ever a paper on causation, he's likely to be cited. But he's uh, written a book called The Book of Why, uh, and it goes into what causal inference is and the reason um, why it's really difficult to answer why questions without it. So. Current AI is really bad at causal learning, uh, but he thinks, I think he, he was the one who suggested that we're likely to solve this problem within a decade. So you've heard, all heard the mantra, correlation isn't causation. It's chanted by you know, rationalists and scientists everywhere. But despite being really powerful, though in, in, uh, insane these predictive powers are, um, AI is really bad at causal learning, causal learning and it. Um, is therefore really bad at answering why questions. And it, there's probably, uh, I guess, demo examples of AI answering why questions, but does it answer them? Does it learn to answer these questions uh, through a, I guess, a, a predictive approach or does it really understand causation? We can say neural, uh, sorry, Bayesian nets are really good at that, but they're, uh, they require a lot of human engineering to develop. So we want to avoid unintended consequences. We want the AI to not only understand the philosophical problems um, surrounding ethics and real world ethics and, and uh, uh, potential meta ethics becomes useful, but we want it to uh, have its values aligned with ours and, um, in a way that we're still important at the end of the day because we all want to survive and, lie and, and be alive, right? <laughs> so where an AI's goals are compatible with ours, um, I want to emphasize that not all our goals or all our values are very useful. Some of them, uh, I think, are confused. Uh, 
and are somewhat selfish. Um, and I, I guess unless we want a singleton human at the end of at the end of civilization, gobbling up all the resources and doing whatever it wants to do, and and everything up to that is like a, a big Valhalla where everybody sort of competes um, to satisfy their their own preferences. Then we need to we need something that sort of uh, uh, allows us to coordinate um, and if we have values that are amenable to coordination, then I guess more of us get to survive that way. So I guess verifiability and intelligibility, um, that is, I mentioned this before about being able to look inside the AI and understand what it's, what's going on and for it to be able to explain to us what's going on. Uh, so AI can understand what we mean when we're asking a question or when we're asking it to do something, we want the AI to interpret um, our instructions or our question correctly and also um, come back at us if our question or instruction seems unwise. And we also want it to happen efficiently. Uh, if we have a causal a process during this, I think that um, causal AI could be way more, uh, way more efficient than current deep learning approaches or current correlative predictive um, AI. Why would we want value alignment? So um, we want AI to understand and employ common sense about what we're asking, our motivations in the context. Sorry, I discussed this last slide. Where desirable solutions are not achieved at any cost, um, like I can imagine, you know, if, if, if I walked into a hospital, um, I wouldn't want the AI taking, taking me apart and killing me to sort of uh, give order, all my organs to other people. <laughs> I mentioned if we made a wish or we um, instructed the AI to do something, we want to know uh, if, if the AI thought that it was counterproductive um, and, and, and would harm us or harm others as well. So ignorance about the internals of AI is bliss. Um, so we want it to be verifiable and intelligible. King Midas, we're all aware, and we all grew up with the story about King Midas touching all his family and turning them into gold, picked up a piece of food when he was hungry and it turned to gold. He, he, he asked a, a genie to make him rich by having everything he touched turning to gold, and it ended up being um, a disaster for him. Yeah, to, so the genie perversely instantiated his wish in a way that was un undesirable. Although he got what he wanted, uh, literally, um, it didn't. It didn't satisfy him. It didn't make him happy. So AI does need to understand ethics, and I think I've made that case. I uh, don't know if I've got anything else on this slide which further reinforces that in a different way. Yeah, uh, prediction. Oh, yes. Can I say that predictive AI often fails, and often fails at the edge of its confidence, the edge of it, the edge of the areas in which it was trained, and it's very hard for, to make predictions about where those edges are. Um, and so, when it fails, sometimes it, it doesn't fail very gracefully at all. Um, and uh, we want software which, when it does fail, it fails gracefully. Um, and degrades gracefully. So uh, I spoke about efficiency. Um, and the other thing is wisdom. I mean, wisdom is hard one through understanding. I don't think uh, wisdom can be generated except through um, this 
DIKW sort of pyramid way. I think this is a good way to visualize it anyway. Um, and so understanding really uh, happens around here. Um, I'm a data engineer. And so what we get with data, we process it into in intelligible forms of information. So, it, you know, it gets structured in logical blocks so that we can group it together and categorize it. Um, and then we sort of cognize that into knowledge. Um, and I guess you can, you know, think of what cognition is, is sort of what our brains do. And then um, it turns into a sort of a place where we can scaffold judgments through understanding. I think the, the KM, this sort of uh, knowledge data, DIKM pyramid is missing the understanding thing here, uh, the understanding aspect. Um, but I'd say it's sort of, it sort of fuzzily sits around here. And so once we do get wisdom, um, then we can, we don't need to do this whole data processing through information to knowledge, to understanding. We already have wisdom. We can sort of very efficiently apply it in, in, in domains where uh, we know that it's safe to do so. Um, and so uh, our decision risk um, in using the data or the information that this, uh, the, this wisdom at this stage um, is much less risky at this stage than just randomly distributing it or using it once it where it's still in a data format so there's risks involved in um not getting the ai to a stage where it can understand what is really going on under hood although it may be very powerful and maybe sort of super intelligent in ways that humans you know can't even reach maybe it can be better at predicting um, you know, how to play a better game of chess or um, how to win a war or how to uh, solve a specific problem with climate change. But um, it can't explain how it got there. Uh, and we don't understand how it makes these amazingly, like, far out, very accurate predictions. Things could go wrong. When things do go wrong, often, like, uh, in these scenarios, things go wrong badly in software engineering. Um, so... Well, what's some arguments against machine understanding? And one of them is it just adds the right ingredients to make AI really cheap and really affordable. Um, so it could mean more people out there, maybe some insane, creepy people who want to sort of cause a, I don't know, to instantiate a collapse, a civilizational collapse or the extinction of certain strains of animals or people, or maybe even like as, as some futurists who are interested in physics are worried about vacuum phase collapses. Let's say we had a, an extreme um, anti-natalist, uh, you know, thinks that the best thing for the universe is, to there, is for there to be no consciousness at all and decides to press the delete button in some ways. I don't know if it's possible. I don't know if vacuum phase collapses are, uh, are possible in, uh, in, in practice, but, I'd I wouldn't like to find out the hard way. So, um, and so then AI will suddenly get extremely capable. Um, and so maybe even though an AI can understand stuff, if it doesn't understand ethics or treat, treat ethics seriously or can treat, treat human values seriously, then it may use its increased optimization power for, you know, very bad things. So there's a couple of hints at how to achieve it. And what, like, if we have a look at the Lakatos winner, uh, the Lakatos Prize winner, Hank Direct, he wrote um, some interesting stuff on 
um, and, and, and uh, has headed up some journals about scientific understanding. And I think we can take some hints from scientific understanding and what it means for, uh, for a scientist to understand um, a, a model or, or what it is in science that, um, yeah, what is scientific understanding? Um, and so he emphasizes intelligibility. And so that's, that's what got me thinking about the difference between just explainable AI, which automates a sort of, um, I don't know, some sort of model that humans are, uh, can, can understand um, and AI being inherently ex- um, intelligible by virtue of it being able to understand itself and it being able to, being in a position to, be, to explain itself um, at human levels. Learning by yeah, causal AI, learning by association. Um, that's what uh, deep learning often does. Uh, causal AI is really uh, uh, um, good at identifying counterfactuals um, and and confounders. And so, although uh, you know a lot of variables in a neural network will fire together, um, Hebbian learning style. Uh, you know, you switch one part, and you'll see some other thing switch over there, and uh, you'll, uh, these are correlations. Some of them may be actual causal, but we just, but um, current neural nets just don't know that. Uh, but um, how, do, how do they know that there's a true um, correlative causal relationship between one parameter and another or one variable and another? Um, we don't unless we can see uh, at an appropriate representative level the causal variables. Uh, and that's really important, I think, um, yeah, for AI in the future. Oh, yeah, I, I might just say this, and that is that I think consequentialism, which or, or utilitarianism as a brand of consequentialism, is requires I think some notion of causal understanding for to make sense of it. Uh, where I think if if you're just a virtue ethicist, um, then you can just rely on exemplars out there um, and, you know, just having enough of a training set with exemplars or virtuous sort of exemplars um, might do. Uh, But for a causal um, sense of ethics, I think you need uh, a causal representation Sorry, for consequentialism, which I believe it requires causal ethics, you need a, a sort of a, a causal understanding of the philosophical problem to make sense of it. Um, and so I think also we were talking about uh, few-shot learning and one-shot learning. Um, if an AI is able to uh, le- like a, develop causal understandings of how models work, then it might be able to actually make better predictions, one shot, maybe able to learn how something works, so be able to make one shot um, attempts and getting it right first time um, without being trained uh, with, you know, huge amounts of data beforehand, because it, it'll just look at something and understand or make sense of its, its causal nature. Um, and uh, it will be able to uh, work very efficiently like that. If I've got a few minutes, I might as well just quickly run through some examples of progress. So there's measurable claims about this, about uh, progress in AI, um, and that is, you know, the the progress in um, hardware uh, efficacy. Um, 
progress in uh, computing, computers getting faster, larger hard drives, faster network speeds, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I think it, that's measurable. We've been able to um, plot progress in those ways. There's abstract metrics um, like task or domain generality. Uh, well, in, in some ways within, um, how do you define the boundaries of the domain anyway? Like AI has been able to um, beat the pants off expert StarCraft players, and that's a game which is in a 3D world. Um, and that requires, you know, maybe subdomains within the domain of that particular 3D world where a form of generality is happening. Um, and like I said earlier, I don't think generality is on or off. I think making more progress in how the human brain works, like working out what the actual um, the circuits are, the, the, the neuron patterns are that um, give rise to certain types of intelligence in our brain, certain types of experience in our brain will be very useful. And there is progress in that. And so maybe um, further progress in brain scanners uh, um, will help us make sense of how humans um, cognize and we, we may be able to transform that into, transfer that into AI. Uh, knowing that there's peaks and valleys in our cognitive landscape, we can then look at areas in which AI is already outstripping humans. At the moment, um, AI is much better at doing, performing calculations at speed um, mathematical calculations. Humans are much better at navigating uh, physical environments. Humans are better at making sense of other humans' emotions. Uh, well, AI is very good at uh, console games now, um, and it beats the pants off humans at most of them, and even like other games like 3D World, like StarCraft and um, Dota, Defense of the Ancients 2, and other big games that people like to play are uh, image recognition. In some cases, humans are better, but AI is creeping up, raising children. Yeah. So some examples where he, uh, AI is getting better and AI is getting better at um, navigating complex physical environments. And it's just gotten way further better than humans at calculating um, image recognition. Well, I'm not sure if it's better than humans at in image recognition now, but uh, I guess foreseeably it could be um it could be better in this decade in general at, at recognizing images certainly better in some ways it, it can process images much faster than humans can um given enough computational power on the right algorithms driving maybe we know grad screen well turing tests and that we all know that they're behavioral um and one of the the issues with the turing tests they don't necessarily um, tests for understanding. Winograd screamers, where you have so, like a, a semantically difficult um, or uh, um, sentence to make sense of, it's more reliable because natural language experts see this as a, um, a far better indicator at how AI is traveling. But we've seen um, AI reach success rates of 88.3. And this is a few years ago. That was GPT-3 or um, a, a couple or maybe one year ago, actually. Um, it, did, it, it did do some, do pretty well in, in, um, in uh, some um, competitions relating to winnowed grad schemas. So that's a sign that's, you know, could be seen as a, a Sputnik moment um, to 
people in natural language processing. Uh, there's been a lot of predictions about what AI won't be able to do. Some of those have been proven wrong already. Uh, but um, like making poetry, AI poetry in many cases has been indistinguishable from human poetry when where you know, you're not told which poem is made by AI, which is made by humans. Often people will guess the opposite. Um, they think the humans are the AIs. Uh, but, you know, um, I guess there's this idea of a, a, a no true Scotsman. When AI achieves something that's considered an, uh, an exemplar of human um, uniqueness, um, like winning at chess or winning at Go or, uh, no, um, being really good at Winograd scheme is people say, oh, but that's not real true intelligence. Um, or that's, you know, or that's not the right way to measure it, or there's, it's artificial, therefore it's not real. Um, so, yeah, I think that we need to really consider the way that we're evaluating the evidence. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, thank you very much, Adam. Um, you've covered, you did two things. One is covered an incredibly broad sweep uh, on both the ethical aspects and the technical aspects of AI, but you also went down deep in, well, I thought you went down deep in quite a number of areas as well. Mm. So it's one of the better, oh, one of the best talks I've heard on where AI is oh, going thanks, for, for, for quite a while. Nice um, and for me, I've, I've written down, I've already written down four questions um, and I'm sure the um, participants here have got a bunch of questions as well. So, but first, on behalf of everyone, I want to thank you for a thoroughly engaging talk tonight, um, Adam. If I can direct people to where they can get the video and the podcasts of tonight's session and previous sessions of Philosophy Matters, um, it's on the rationalrealm.com, www. RationalRealm.com website and go to the resource section and you'll see there um, a subsection videos and another subsection podcasts and you can also now subscribe to uh, Rational Realm podcasts.